will be in Judges 6 and Judges 7. So we're in the story of Gideon. We're going to look at Gideon in two parts this morning. Today we'll look at chapter 6 and 7. The next, in two weeks, we'll look at chapter 8. Now, ever since I was a, a small child, I, I was one of those children that, well, I would get fearful, scared, afraid. I don't know how many nights I spent sleeping on my parents' floor. It actually didn't take much for me to, to be afraid. Just, just accidentally watching a commercial. Watching something on TV I accidentally watched. Just turning the lights on and seeing the darkness cover my bedroom. Hearing the furnace kick in. We had one of those old houses. Just that eerie sound. As I grew up, fear was always just sort of lurking in the background. And I assume this morning that, that you might not be as fearful as I was as a child, but, but, but we all struggle with fear, to some degree, at some times. Just think that this, this past week, there's been a developing story in China. Last I read, more than 9,000 people have been infected with the coronavirus. There's eight confirmed cases in the United States. Or last week, as we were gathering to worship, as we were gathering as a church, we learned soon after of the, the tragic fate of Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and a few more in a tragic helicopter accident. To add to that, we have rising tension in the Middle East, and I don't know any sort of political person who knows how that's going to turn out. This past year, the Houston Chronicle uncovered hundreds of cases of sexual abuse in various churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, we know that there are sexual predators in our world. We're not naive. And yet it's terrifying, utterly terrifying to think of them in our churches. Or just think about where we live. We are under warning for tsunamis, warning from earthquakes, warning from volcanic eruption. It's like the, the natural disaster trifecta. Or if you're my age, you might have grown up being afraid of killer bees. Or fearful of what would happen when the year 2000 rolled around. <laughs> or you, were, you are still, like me, terrified to swim in the ocean. No, 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 no. You... Now, as we grow, right, our fears morph. They evolve. They seem to be more rational. But they're still there. We all have our fears. And I just say that if you're not a Christian here this morning, we're so glad that you're here. But I wonder, how is it that you think about or cope with or engage with your own fears? This morning, through the, the story of Gideon, we're going to look at how God interacts with us with our fears, but, but for you this morning, I just want to press a question before you. How do you cope with your fears? How do you deal with your fears? Those, those many worries that you have in our lives. And for the rest of us, right, all of us are not off the hook. We all have our fears. Those fears mature over time, right? We become less and less afraid of the monster under the bed because honestly, the monster just doesn't stay under the bed, does he? 
He just morphs. He evolves. He just has a different, he just looks different. Things like recessions, death, sickness, public speaking, failures, rejection, right? There, there are almost endless monsters that we fear every day of the week. And so this morning, as we look at the uh, Judges 6 and 7, as we look at Gideon, we're going to think about fear. And we're going to learn that in the midst of our fears, God continually reassures us of his presence and his power. That's the main idea. It should be on the screen behind me. In our fears, God continually reassures us of his presence and his power. So if you will turn with me to chapter 6. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 242. We're going to kind of slowly work our way through this. Starting in verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And, became, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. We'll stop there. So what we have in these first six verses is, up to this point, the most descriptive kind of illustration of Israel's oppression based on a foreign nation. And so here we have kind of Midian enter the scene. Midian and their alliance with the Amalekites and whoever the people of the east were. And they would descend on Israel like locusts, like hordes. And they would just devour the produce. They would plunder the land. Year after year after year after year after year after year, seven years, they would come, as verse 4 describes it, leaving no sustenance in Israel, no sheep, ox, donkey. As sure as taxes, Midian would come and strip Israel of the fruit of their own labor. And it's no wonder in verse 2 that Israel then goes to the mountains. They they sort of eke out a cave-like existence. They're terrified. They're just waiting for for the land to be done or, or the Midianites to just get a tummy ache or just get bored and move on. When you think about it, it was a sort of psychological warfare, wasn't it? You have them coming in, taking all of the produce, and there's no assurance that there was going to be enough food to go around. Because it's one thing to go without a a want, right? It's another thing for me personally to go without a need. It's a far, far greater thing to see your loved ones go without a nutritional need. And that's what we have here. Talk about fear. And so they, verse 6, cry out to the Lord. They're brought low. Now, 
in response to this, as we've been reading, we expect, here comes a deliverer. God's going to raise up a savior. And so in some ways, what we read next in verses 7 through 10, it's really, it's odd. Okay? It just kind of comes out of nowhere. All right, look at it with me. Verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God, and you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. You have not obeyed my voice. So here we have Israel crying out to the Lord. And God sends them a prophet, a preacher. And it's sort of absurd. I mean, just think about it this way. Imagine a friend of you calling, a friend calling, saying, I'm stuck, my car is broken down on the side of the highway. And you say, great, I'll send a philosopher, not a mechanic. They needed a savior. They needed a lecture. Or maybe a sermon is exactly what they needed. Now, the content of this sort of sermon from this prophet, it's actually in sort of an exposition of verse 1 of chapter 6. Verse 1 says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Israel, finally, after seven years, is brought so low that they cry out to God. And God sends a prophet to explain to them why it is that they were enslaved in the first place. They were enslaved because of their idolatry, because of their sin, because of their evil practices. Because if you go back to Deuteronomy 28, what we have there in Deuteronomy 28 is blessings for covenant keeping, and there's curses for covenant breaking. And they're described in exhaustive, terrifying terms in Deuteronomy 28. And then when we come to Deuteronomy 28, 38, one of the curses is described and said that locusts will come and devour the land. Well, if you're reading Judges carefully, do you remember how the Midianites are described? They come like locusts. And so here we have God As they're crying out, God sends a prophet, not yet a savior, God sends a preacher to explain to them and connect the dots. They needed someone to expose their own idolatry, their own sin, someone to explain the word of God to them, to connect the dots. You see, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, but they didn't see it. Isn't that the case for for us too. So often our sin, our idolatry is just hidden and we don't see it. And so what we don't need is a self-help book from a self-help guru. We need God and God's word to shine a light on our souls and hearts and minds to convict us, to kind of extract our idolatry and sin and put it before our face to see what's really going on in our lives. Because without the word of God, it's not just that we can't follow God. And sometimes it's that we can't return to God. That was the case for Israel. 
And so God sends a, a, a prophet to preach to them, to connect the theological dots, to say, this all happened because of your idolatry. So prior to the deliverance by God, they, just like us, needed the word of God. And it's that word of God that then sent the context for God's deliverance. So, verse 11, enter the Savior, the deliverer that God would use. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under a terebinth at Oprah, which belongs to Joash the Abersite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all of this happened? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of the Midianites. Verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the might of yours and save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said, and he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. But please don't depart from here until I come to you and bring my present and, and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Now go down to verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull it down the altar at Baal at your father's house and cut it down the Asherah pole that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold there with stones laid in due course. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of town to do it by day, he did it by night. Now go down to verse 33. Now all the Midianites and all the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he, surround, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abzerites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Verse 36, Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, it is on dry ground, then shall I know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose earlier the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just one more with a fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And God did so that night and it was dry on the fleece only and on all the ground there was dew. So what we see in this, these sort of 30 verses in many ways is Gideon's fear on full display, right? 
As the narrative unfolds, we see Gideon's fears kind of being amplified over and over and over again. At first, Gideon is terrified to lead God's people into battle. The the angel of the Lord calls to him, calls him mighty man of valor. He says, you're going to save Israel. I want you to go and save Israel. Verse 16, Gideon needs assurances. He's, He's pretty afraid. Then he's afraid that the God himself has abandoned Israel. That's what that back and forth conversation is with the angel of the Lord. Gideon asks sort of these the, uh, flurry of rhetorical questions, basically saying, where are you? You've abandoned us. Gideon also is afraid and insecure of his place in the world, right? Gideon's no one, no one from nowhere going nowhere. And then when God says, okay, I want you to destroy the idols in your community. He's terrified. I mean, he obeys, but he does it by night because he's terrified of what might happen if he did it by day. Verse 27. He's also afraid that he's misunderstood his calling, right? Maybe maybe these are just hallucinations or like voices in his head, right? You've had that where you, you have a thought in your head and you're like, was that God or was that just... I didn't eat breakfast sort of thing. So he's terrified. So time and time again, he says, I need a sign. I need a sign. I need a sign. I need assurances. And over and over again, God provides those signs. Time and time again, the angel of the Lord reassures Gideon that he's with him in the midst of his fears. Verse 12, he assures him of his calling. Verse 14, of his identity. His name is Man of Valor, Jerubbabel, right? The man who contends with other gods. The angel of the Lord assures Gideon that, that he's not going to die, right? Finally, when Gideon realizes after the first sign that, that, that this is the angel of the Lord, he's like terrified and the angel said, peace be with you. You're not going to die. God then assures Gideon of his power. Gideon isn't clothed with traditional armor. Down in verse 34, do you see what he's clothed with? The Spirit of the Lord. Gideon's assured of God's power. And then three times Gideon asks for signs. He tests God. And three times God in his kindness and patience answers him. God just continually, patiently, kindly, graciously, mercifully reassuring Gideon to just step out in faith and trust that what God is calling him to, God will accomplish through him. And so what we see in in chapter 6 kind of weaved together is, is human fear and divine assurance. Gideon's fear and heavenly assurance. But what is Gideon assured of? Just just think about this. What is it actually, specifically, that Gideon is assured of? It's actually very, very small. It's very, very narrow. It's very, very few things. I mean, Gideon's not assured that if he does this, that his kids will never fall away from the faith. He, He wasn't assured that he'd have an easy life if he obeyed God. Or that if he did this, there'd be lots of money in his bank. As it relates to Gideon, God's assurance to him, it's pretty narrow. There is a possibility that during the battle, he could have thrown his back out. He wasn't given any assurance that he would survive. 
he could lose everything. Actually, the assurance in this chapter is twofold. First, he's assured that God would use him to deliver Israel. That's the first assurance. We see that in verses 14 and 16. But there's a second assurance. Gideon is assured of God's presence. That God would be with him every step of the way. Right? Verse 12, the Lord is with you. So what Gideon is assured of is God's peaceful presence, even in the midst of his fears. Gideon's not alone. We who are on this side of the cross, we have the same assurance that Gideon has. In the book of John, chapter 14, Jesus is predicting his impending death and resurrection. He's leaving his disciples, and they're terrified. They're fearful. He knows that. And so he talks about how he's going to comfort them. Verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away. I'm coming back to you. See, the disciples thought that that Jesus was abandoning him, and Jesus says, no, that's not true at all. It's actually better for me to go. You see, in our our fears, in our worries, we need the Word of God. We saw that in the first part. Uh, But we also need the presence of God. Because I don't know all of your fears. I don't even know all of my fears. I don't know if they're rational fears or irrational. If they'll come true or if they're just overactive imagination. But I know this. Because time and time again, God says that even in the midst of those fears, even in the reality of those fears, God is with us. God is for us. God will not abandon us. Now, sometimes God delivers us from our fears. We might have testimonies to those sorts of realities in our lives. But I think more often than not, God works in other ways. God often doesn't take away our fears. I think instead he empowers us to conquer our fears by giving his spirit to us. You see, the spirit that clothed Gideon, Gideon who who was clothed with the armor of the spirit himself, he's not the only one clothed with the spirit, is he? All those who put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, all those who, who hear the word of God preached, exposed to their sins and then turn from that, repent of their sin, well, they too, like Gideon, are not just clothed with the Spirit, indwelled with the Spirit. And this Spirit, it's not just your ticket into heaven. The Holy Spirit has also other ministries and purposes. The Spirit is your safety harness and comfort on the roller coaster of life. It helps you remember time and time again that God is with you, that God is for you, that God will will ultimately deliver you because of Jesus Christ. It's a reminder that God hasn't forgotten us. Now, when we look at our lives sometimes, when we just stare at our fears, it might look like God has abandoned us, just like Gideon. It might look overwhelming. No, God's not here. God's not with me. God's forsaken me. And we cry out to God in that reality. And yet, 
And this is the comfort of the gospel. The gospel says, no, no, no. You might feel like God has abandoned you. It might look like God has abandoned you. It might not seem like God is with you. But he's there. He's there. He's he's with us in the good times and the bad times, in the joy and in the pain. In the midst of every trial and temptation and pain and suffering, God is with us. He hasn't abandoned us. The older I get, the more I realize there are so few guarantees and assurances in this life. And yet, though our assurances aren't exhaustive, there still are some assurances, some divine assurances, some heavenly assurances. And from start to end, not just in the book of Judges, but from Genesis to Revelation, we, we, we see that God will do everything to be with his people. That because of our sin, we can't be with God. And so, if you're worried or concerned or thinking or feeling like God isn't with, well, know this. We know that's not true. We know that God is so committed to the reality of being with his people because he sent his own son. He sent his own son to die and to accomplish that very reality. And so if you want steel, if you want resolve in all of our fears and our worries, well, I could think of nothing more helpful than knowing that God and God himself is with us through the storms of life. And I think just way as, as an application, this is what we do when we show up in each other's lives during trials and fears. God calls us as a church to show up in each other's lives to just, like Job's friends, sit down and be a presence. And because in many ways, when we do that, it's not just that our presence with people in their fears is helpful, though it is, but it's also that our presence with them reminds them of the ultimate presence of God himself who sits with us in our fears So that's one of the great privileges of the Christian church is to show up in each other's fears and to remind them by our own presence that God has not forsaken them. So first, how do do we battle our fears and our worries? Well, one is by a resolve and a trust that independent of our feelings, God is with us. Every step of the way, God is with us. But we learn something else too. We learn something about God's power. Look, look at chapter 7. Verse 1. Then Zerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people... The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall go home, shall go home with you. And anyone who I say, this one shall go with you, shall go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. 
And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let the, all, all the others go, every man to his house. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but remained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Verse 9. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. We'll stop there. So here we have 22,000 men assembled for battle. Too many. Israel might have thought this was too small, but from heaven's assessment, there's too many of them. And so God begins to whittle down Gideon's army. Then he says, if anyone's afraid, you're excused. And so he whittles it down to 10,000. Gideon then tells his, his military, okay, we're going to go to this, this water and we're going to drink. And he starts watching everyone. And those who knelt down to drink, go home. Those who lapped the water in like a dog, you can stay. And now there's 300, right? A once mighty army. Now it's barely a militia. And then at night, the Lord says to Gideon, okay, the time has come. Go. I've given them into your hands. God assures him over and over again, the victory is yours. You just, you just got to play out the game. Just go, go. And don't you just love God's patience? He says, but, you know, if you're afraid, verse 10, go down and I'll give you a vision. And we know that he's afraid, right? We know what's going to happen. He goes down and he needs a vision. He's terrified. And as he's down there, he overhears two Midianites. And one of the Midianites said, I had a vision. He's talking to his friend, his comrade, and he said, I had this vision that bread came down, tumbling down into Midian, knocked down our tent, flipped it upside down, and flattened it. And you're like, that's a weird vision. I don't know what that means. Well, thankfully, his friend, a Midianite, interprets the dream. And says, that, that bread is Gideon. We're the tent. We're in trouble. I mean, that's the Stephen authorized paraphrase. So that's all Gideon needs to hear, right? He comes back to his camp. He divides the army into three groups. He gives them the weirdest kind of armor and, and tools to fight them. He says, I, uh, you're going to need a trumpet and you're going to need a jar and we're going to put a torch in it. And he said, we're going we're to divide in three companies of 100 each. And when I tell you to, I want you to blow that trumpet, take out that torch, game, set, match. And so they do that, right? And you can almost imagine the Midianites, you know, it's three in the morning. They still got sleepy buys in their eyes. They look up and it looks like they're surrounded. I mean, they don't know that there's only 300 men. They blow the trumpet, light their flames. They're surrounded. I mean, there's there's so much chaos that they just start fighting each other. Then they leave. Most of them start fleeing. Gideon calls other tribes. They cut them off. Then they bring the princes. 
take them back, execute the princes of Midian. I mean, it's a rousing victory, right? Israel has won against her oppressor. 300 men versus an army described as locusts. And yet, though we could frame it that way, it really isn't Israel's victory, is it? It's God's victory. We've been thinking about fear. And here in this section, we actually learned something very, very important about fear, and it's this. That in the midst of our fears, many times those fears kind of come or are birthed in our hearts are when we feel weak and insecure. There's a reason why we fear cougars and not kittens. One exposes our weakness and our lack of strength. The other one doesn't. And yet God's point in whittling down this army is that he wanted Israel to feel weak. God whittles down his army to test them, right? We see that in verse 2. He says, well, your army is too big. And if you won the victory, you'd be tempted to take all the credit. So I'm going to have to whittle it down because God says, I'm going to take all the credit in this victory. And so back in chapter 6, we have Gideon testing God. That's the language that's used. He tests God by way of signs. But now the tables have turned in chapter 7. Gideon's no longer testing God. We read in chapter 7, verse 4, God's now testing Israel. And he's testing Israel by intentionally making them weak. Because he knows that if he makes them weak, well, their only hope is in God himself and God's strength. That their strength would have to come from somewhere or someone. Now, so often we run from our fears. So often we resolve, I'm never going to feel weak again. I hate that feeling. And yet, weakness is such a great teacher. It tells us that we're creatures. It reminds us of the fragility of life. I mean, our strength, our intellect, our might, I mean, they just puff us up, make us feel good about ourselves. But when we're in times feeling insecure and weak and afraid, they humble us. They remind us that we need God. So when we're weak, we feel afraid. And when we feel afraid, we, we look for something or someone to shelter us, to bring us safety. That's how this works. Ingenuity, security systems. We could just name all the things we just run to for security, for refuge, when we're feeling weak and afraid. And God here in this chapter is banging on the drum. My, you can find refuge in me. I am your strength in times of trouble. Now, it's natural to run from weakness. But the unfortunate thing is that if we run from our weaknesses and our fears, and, well, indirectly we start running away from God because God saves through weakness. You see, the same God who saved through the weakness of 300 men in Gideon's day is the same God who saves through the weakness of the cross of Jesus Christ to save sinners from the wrath of God. As Paul wrote, when I am weak, then I'm strong. There's a formula there. Weakness and fear comes to us. And yet, 
when you embrace that weakness, you get to see God on display and displaying particularly his power. This past week, I was driving my children to school, and I told them a story. This might be good parenting or bad parenting. You can tell me after. But I told them a story. It's a really, really old story. I think it's the 10th or 11th century. It's a story of St. George and the dragon. Some of you might know this. I'm going to ruin it for you if you don't know this story. It's an old legend. It's a story about a princess who is enslaved, imprisoned by a dragon. And once a year, this dragon devours a princess. And so St. George gets on his mighty steed, and he goes. He's going to rescue the princess. And so he goes, and then he gets there finally, and he doesn't see the dragon anywhere. And so he has a dialogue with the princess, and he says, let's go. Get on the horse. Let's, let's get out of here. And the princess is like, you don't understand. Get out of here. The dragon's too mighty. Get out of here. And right as they're having this dialogue, in the water next, a dragon comes out of the water, ready to attack and devour St. George. Well, St. George gets on his horse. He takes his spear and his sword. He plunges the spear into the dragon, and eventually he kills the dragon. Rescues the princess, brings her back to their town, and the townspeople are so excited that revival breaks out and they become Christians. Joy. That's the story. That's the legend. So I asked my children as I'm driving, and I said, What's the moral of the story? And one of my children, I won't tell you who, said, Oh, that, that you shouldn't be afraid of dragons. And I said, No, that's not the story at all. You should be afraid of dragons. They're terrifying. They breathe fire. <laughs> it's going to be a metaphor here, okay? Just wait for it. I said, that's not the moral of the story, of the legend. The moral is this. Dragons can be killed and conquered. That's the lesson we take away from this. So then my, my well, one of my children, I almost gave it away. One of my children said, well, but dad, dragons don't exist. Again, I said, well, sure they do, just not in the form you might think. And I started listing dragons in her own life, sin and worries and fears. I just started listing them. That's the point. That's the moral of the story. Now, there's one more thing I should have said. I didn't say this. They got out of the car and ran, and I thought, that was either the weirdest thing <laughs> I was trying to encourage them to conquer some things in their lives as they went to school. But nevertheless, I just stopped there. But I should have kept going. And I should have said, one of the reasons why we can conquer dragons, in small part, not every dragon, but, but in small part, is because we have a conquering king in Jesus Christ who conquered sin and Satan and death itself. He's the greatest dragon killer ever who then, because of that, empowers us with his spirit to be small conquerors, small dragon killers. He clothes us with his spirit so that we aren't paralyzed by fear because we remember that he's with us, he's empowering us, and ultimately, one day, he will fulfill his promise when the trumpet comes from heaven, he will return and make all things right. In Gideon's day, the dragons were scores of Midianites. And God said, I'm going to show my power to save you through your weakness. 
God hasn't gotten bored with that formula. God still uses our weaknesses to display his power, his power to save. And then let me just end by reading Paul, who picks up on this very thing in writing a letter to the Corinthians. He writes this, The Lord's grace is sufficient for you, for your power, for his power is perfected in your weakness. Therefore, let us rather boast about our weaknesses so that the power of Christ might dwell in us. Therefore, let us be well content with our weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecution, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when we are weak, then we are strong. Amen? Let's pray. God, we are grateful for the reality that you use the, the weakness of the cross to display the greatest power in this world, that, that you would die for sinners, people who didn't deserve, that you, you would die to ransom us from the domain of darkness and bring us and transfer us into the king, kingdom of your beloved Son. Lord, we are grateful for that reality, Lord. And yet we know we, we have so much to fear. We have so many fears. Help us. Help us to be ever more aware of your presence in our lives and help us to be reminded that you are a good father who loves us to such an extent that you would send your own son. And we just pray all this in your son's name. Amen.